the price of inaction is higher than the price of action. We, you know, we wipe out Louisiana with a hurricane. We uh, burn down all of California with a with a climate-induced drought. These things cost money. How do you translate that into how much every Joe Blow is going to spend on his monthly electric bill? Okay, so welcome to another episode of the Young Professionals of Energy podcast. We've got Matt Wald with us today. Matt's an independent energy analyst and writer. He's a former policy analyst and communications consultant at the Nuclear Energy Institute, and he's formerly uh, an energy and environment reporter at the New York Times. We've also got our co-host, Carolyn, here with us again. Matt, Carolyn, how are you guys doing? Very good. Doing well. How about you, Mark? Oh, man. Uh, happy to be back in Denver. So um cool yeah let's just uh let's just kick it off matt we had sent over kind of a list of questions to kind of help guide the conversation but i was hoping to start with uh just tell us about your background what got you, what got you into journalism and writing about energy and how'd you start well i always liked going out and kicking the tires on technology seeing things talking to people i started at the new york times in 1976 and by 1978 79 we were in an energy crisis. We're in an energy crisis now, but it's a different kind of crisis. The crisis in 78, 79 was the Iranian revolution and the price of oil going from $4 a barrel to $12 a barrel and nothing flat, and then and then on to $40 a barrel. And uh, I started writing about how people couldn't get home heating oil, which is what they used where I was assigned in, in Connecticut by the Times and how the reason wasn't so much the shortage of oil, it turned out to be distributors using this opportunity to take a big markup. So it turns out that energy is both a physical problem, an engineering problem, and of course a business problem. And I don't think that's generally uh, appreciated. And the, of course the energy business has changed a lot since then. We now have problems of shortage and surplus. We've got places where there's more uh, electric generating capacity than we can use because we've built all this solar and wind. We don't have the transmission to support it. And we've got a, a short-term uh, petroleum uh, shortfall here, but that, that won't last. But we're dealing with a situation where we're heading into both shortage and surplus, and we don't really know how to handle it. Life is going to be interesting. Now, Matt, when you first started your career, um, you were assigned to energy or were you interested in it beforehand? I was not assigned to it. It just became the story in <laughs> the New York area in the uh, in 7879, gasoline lines. You can always tell people to stay home, but uh, if they don't have gasoline, but if they don't have home heating oil, that's another category of problem. And of course, there was a, a natural gas price peak then. Uh, but I just found it's an area that's not terrifically well understood by the public. It wasn't terrifically well understood by my editors, and it was ripe to go out and see what was happening. There were also all kinds of technological developments then. They sort of fell by the wayside. They're coming back again. Electric cars, strategies to reduce carbon emissions, etc. It's all cyclical. It all happens again and again. It's very interesting to hear your perspective from someone who's been around the block. Yeah, my uh, graduate thermo professor talks about the 70s and 80s and how 
wind and solar revolution then was present uh, and they had tried it. It didn't work. And his comment was always, no one understands the trillions of dollars of infrastructure that we've already invested in in hydrocarbons. This is correct. The other problem is an absolute inability to predict the future. Uh, at the time, in the late 70s, a company that doesn't exist anymore, Northeast Utilities, was trying to finish off the Millstone 3 nuclear reactor, and the price kept rising. So the state went out, this is before deregulation, this was all going to be a public expense. The state went out and hired a, a Boston consulting firm, uh, Data Resources Inc., now known as DRI, and it's a subsidiary of something else, to see whether the plant was worth finishing. And they cooked numbers for months, and they came back with, well, the only value to the plant is the oil that it will displace because our electricity comes from oil. Okay, that's now ridiculous, but that's what it was then. That the price had risen, but that it would still be worth finishing. The cost was then up around $3.5 billion. It would still be worth finishing if the cost of oil would average $100 a barrel over the plant's lifetime, and the plant had a 40-year lifetime. Well, the plant is now beyond 40 years old. It's still running. It doesn't displace any oil at all. It displaces some coal and some natural gas. And, of course, oil never hit an average of over $100 a barrel in that period, especially not resid, which is what they were burning. So they were wrong on all counts. And now New England is lucky to have it because it's one of the linchpins of reducing carbon emissions. So it turns out they did the right thing for the wrong reason. There are other times in energy planning where we do the wrong thing for the right reason. It's really hard to see ahead in this field. It always has been. At this point, you can look ahead and say, we don't have a clue what's going to happen. We've got, at this point, more than half the electric utilities in the United States pledging to get to zero carbon by mid-century. And do you know how many of them have said how they're going to do it? None. They don't know how they're going to do it. There'd be some mix of wind, solar, storage, nuclear. They're waiting for new, <coughs> excuse me, new inventions to make this work, and they don't have them yet. That's <laughs> pretty baffling. Backtracking on kind of your experience a little bit at the Times, you mentioned that it sounded like there was a niche opportunity uh, since a lot of your editors and the staff at the Times didn't understand energy. Um, was that a strategy that you could recommend to other kind of young professionals in their careers that if there's opportunity with an or organization, uh, go and chase it? I do, but they should also know that when they go home at Thanksgiving to mom and dad and explain what they do for a living, mom and dad may smile and nod, but it doesn't mean they understand what's going on. <laughs> I get that all the time. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, the problem is that we're living in a dynamic market and people only pay attention to it when there's something wrong. Now we've got this terrific flow of ideas. Let's stop using fossil fuels. Well, okay, how? Let's blame the fossil fuel companies. Okay, but how much fossil, how much carbon loading is that going to handle? Uh, it's really, it's not a very well understood uh, uh, situation. And the going forward, we have people who want all kinds of things, but there isn't a general consensus about how much we should spend, if anything, on this. We don't have a good, we have people telling us, look, the price of inaction is higher than the price of action. We, you know, we wipe out Louisiana with a hurricane. We uh, burn down all of California with a, with a climate-induced drought. 
these things cost money. How do you translate that into how much every Joe Blow is going to spend on his monthly electric bill? How do you translate that into how many charging stations do we really need for electric cars? How hard should we push this industry? We just don't have a mechanism. We have intermittent spurts of will to do it. We don't have a sustained consensus. Climate change became a big deal in the late 80s when we had a drought so bad, the Mississippi fell so low it became unnavigable. And we had power plants with cooling water intakes that were suddenly sticking out above the level of the river. And James Hansen testified, and it was a sweltering hot summer here in the Washington, D.C. area, and everybody agreed we had to do something. What do we do? We threw a little bit of money into R&D, which may turn out to be useful, but we did not address the problem. I'm not certain how well we're going to address the problem now. Time is obviously shorter now, although I'd hesitate to say precisely how much shorter. I don't know when the drop dead date is. There probably is one out there. And we're now in an energy situation where we got to start planning not only for cutting carbon, but also for mitigation against climate change. We have to harden our energy infrastructure for more severe natural conditions, including drought and fires induced by power lines, including getting walloped by floods and, and hurricanes, including looking at more extremes in energy demand as weather extremes grow. Uh, life is going to be interesting. I agree. And I'm curious about your thoughts on a, a typical counter argument or one that I've heard to be effective in my thinking is that the number of deaths or injuries induced in first world countries from climate related events is at an all time low or the percentage of deaths or injuries and the percentage of insurance claims or infrastructure damage is also at an all time low, meaning we have lots more infrastructure. So the total total amount is higher, but the uh, aggregate amount or percentage amount is lower. Do you have thoughts on that? So we'll burn down a town here or there, only kill a handful of people, not the whole town, because we got helicopters to take them out. We got drones looking down on where the fires are. We know what's coming, et cetera. Yeah, all that is true. But <laughs> but we've got threats to agriculture. We've got other threats which will have real economic impact. And also, in fairness, we have... We are the carbon Bigfoot. We got the biggest carbon emissions per capita, and we are historically the largest carbon emitters. Yeah, and we, the United States. We, the United States. And it's not really fair to the rest of the world for us to use up all the carrying capacity of the earth. The United States has a history of doing good things and bad things abroad. It's time for us now to show the world how to solve this problem and also to be ready to export the tools needed to do that. Those tools, at the, at the moment we've ceded the, a uh, lot of the solar panel manufacture to slave labor Uyghurs in China. Um, the wind turbine business really is international. There's a lot of interesting, exciting work going on in advanced nuclear, which will be an essential supplement to variable wind and solar. If you like wind and solar, you call them variable. If you don't, you call them intermittent. But in any case, you need a zero carbon source to plug the holes. I call them undependable, unreliable. 
what percentage of nuclear do you think you would need as a, a total power source um, to make an impact on carbon? Well, we got that now. We got 20% of the electric generation is nuclear. Nuclear generation hit a peak about two years ago. It's declining slightly because we've had some premature retirements. It looks like it could increase with some new reactors coming on towards the end of this decade. I would go back a step, which is that the size of the grid has to increase. If the grid is going to handle everything now done by gasoline and diesel fuel, if it's going to handle all the home heating and a lot of the industry that's now met with natural gas or coal or oil, the grid by mid-century uh, has to increase by a factor of about two and a half to three. And that's just a rough assumption here, presuming that we get continued efficiency gains that offset our economic and population growth. So, okay, we got to grow the whole system roughly by a factor of three. And guess what? We got to get rid of 60% of the existing system because only 40% is non-emitting. And in fact, that 40% includes some stuff we probably won't tolerate in future. The climate impact of ethanol, for example, is unclear, but it clearly is not zero carbon. The climate impact of burning wood chips is unclear, but it clearly is not zero carbon. So if you throw out 60% and then triple the size of the system, the remaining portion of the system has to increase by a factor of roughly eight. But actually it's more than eight because if you're looking at intermittent solar and wind, you gotta commit yourself to build to meet the less windy periods, the times when there's less sun. So you gotta commit yourself to terrific useless surpluses at certain seasons. So maybe it has to increase, I don't know what, by factor of 10. Are we on the road to doing that in the next 30 years? I, I hadn't noticed, that's not possible. <laughs> oh, okay, so, Matt, you're so, so rational, so logical. Right, right. right. Mean, just in probably a minute or less or two minutes, you, you outlined and said, hey, here's some real simple math, guys. Right. Like using a bunch of liquid fuels and a bunch of, we're burning gasoline, we're burning coal. If we really want to replace all this, this is real simple math. How are we going to do it? Okay, so into that, you introduce nuclear. Right now, we think of nuclear as an electric machine. However, nuclear reactors may moonlight when they're not producing electricity. They may produce hydrogen, maybe for conversion back into power, maybe for production of synthetic hydrocarbons using captured carbon from some other process like natural gas generation. You turn it into long chain liquid hydrocarbons and you pretend it's gasoline. You run cars, trucks, and airplanes on it. Uh, there are other jobs they could do. The drought and change in rainfall patterns is going to mean a terrific demand for desalinated water. We're going to make and move water. Uh, and, and there's some other work that's non-electric. Uh, they could power chemical plants with direct steam. Uh, it's been done. It just isn't very common. And there's not much point in doing it if, if uh, natural gas fossil gas is two bucks a million BTU. It's hard to compete with that if you're not paying for the, the carbon price, et cetera. So how much nuclear do we need? Let me get into this backwards. What we've got now is large light water reactors. What we're gonna have in future is gas graphite reactors, is small light water reactors, is maybe a few new large light water reactors, 
is molten salt reactors, maybe molten lead reactors, sodium reactors, etc. It's going to be a lot of different things. And I don't know is the answer. I don't know what the overall uh, situation is going to look like. And it's a little disturbing that we don't really have a plan. I said the future is hard to predict, so maybe a plan isn't worth it. But I think if we draw, draw up a plan, it'll need amendment along the way. But we might do well to come up with a budget, a plan for how you're going to marry intermittent renewables with uh, other non-carbon emitting sources like nuclear and how much you think you're going to need as we increase by a factor of eight. I mean, isn't it isn't it kind of simple? Like if nuclear is doing, you know, 20 percent of the power now with what are we at? 94 reactors roundup called 100 for round numbers. I mean, to get to 100% of the electricity, you need 500 reactors, 500 gigawatts, call it. And then if, if you need supplemental replacement for sin fuels and other power generation fuel or fuel generation, then presumably double that again. So somewhere between 750 and 1,000 reactors. Alas, it's more complicated. The reactors we have now run flat out 24-7, and they're magnificent machines. They've got a capacity factor at the year end of 93, 94%. However, the electric system doesn't run that way. The electric system has peaks and valleys. What we use to meet the peaks and valleys is mostly natural gas. Lately, it's also some coal. Coal plants have gone to be, become peakers, believe it or not. So we need to replace the peakers, either by putting in nuclear reactors that are gonna switch, they'll be switch hitters. They'll move to electricity when that's what's needed, or they'll move to something else. And the various streams of energy, uh, liquid hydrocarbons, space heating, industrial use, electricity, are going to flow together. And maybe we'll have a thousand reactors, but maybe it won't. they won't be serving the electric market. They'll be serving a merged market of all kinds of things. There's good reason to think we can churn out small reactors faster than big reactors. We've always gotten bigger and bigger because there are economies of scale. There's only a handful of places in the world that can build a reactor vessel for a big reactor. If you go to a small modular reactor, you may multiply the number of places that can make that equipment. And you may find reasons people are into distributed generation these days. Some of the ways they're into distributed generation are quite short-sighted. Put up a few solar panels and a small gas turbine. Well, that ain't zero carbon. You could cut your carbon, but that ain't zero. Uh, you could end up with small reactors, the ability to be more resilient because they're distributed, because you can run the grid in segments. So one question is not what fraction of the electric system is going to be nuclear, but what fraction of the overall system is going to be nuclear? Because we're used to thinking of the electric sector as distinct from refining of, of oil or space heating, et cetera. And it may turn out not to be that way. In in any scenario, it's more than we have now. And by a factor of, or a multiple of at least two, if not yeah. eight. <laughs> Possibly, yes. Now, Matt, I want to go back to what you said earlier about how there's not really a plan for how we're going to act on this clean energy mandate. Do you think the rhetoric in the media, because it's so polarized, is a big reason why there's no plan? Uh, it's possible. I think something else is going on, which is Washington is a city of interest groups. 
So we've got a coal lobby now not doing particularly well, a natural gas lobby, which is doing quite well, an oil lobby, which is saying this is American vitality, this is American economy, etc. We have a nuclear lobby, which is good, but it's not has not been great about expanding market share. Uh, we've got really ferocious energetic wind and solar lobbies. Uh, these are businesses. They're in it to make uh, make profits for their members. Uh, we don't have an overall view of the way all these pieces are going to fit together. We have put money into various uh, good research and demonstration projects. And if we're successful, a bunch of them will fail. And the good ones will survive and we'll know what they are. There's benefit and failure here. Uh, we need a better mousetrap. Let's build 10 of them and see if three of them are worth mass producing. Uh, but we don't have uh, a rational engineering plan for how to fit this together. We also don't have the transmission to make it work. If we're going to multiply our system by a factor of, of two and a half or three, and by definition, we're going to not be able to choose where we want to put the wind and solar in order to beef up the grid. They're going to have to go where they want to go, where the wind and solar are. We're talking about a lot more transmission. And we're not very good at permitting and constructing transmission. We know how to build the stuff, but getting it over the political and regulatory hurdles is difficult. Yeah, there's a really great book about that, about the uh, clean line, or there's a company called Clean Line that tried, worked for almost a decade, right, to try and build a direct transmission line from uh, the wind fields of Oklahoma to, I believe, the T Tennessee Valley Authority, right, to try and. They had yeah. five of them, the, the Grain Line Express, uh, five of them, four in the east, one in the west. Right. Uh, and NREL came out with a study, uh, National Renewable Energy Laboratory, very recently, the SEAMS study, S-E-A-M-S, which said that if you could knit the eastern and western interconnections together better, you'd spur wind and solar and cut costs. Uh, the, the western interconnection has about 250,000 megawatts of, of uh, capacity. The eastern has 700,000. And they're connected by some tiny number, uh, maybe 100 megawatts of, uh, uh, of capacity. Uh, it, they really are separate systems. And then you've got Texas, which throws away wind energy because often there isn't the demand, and then freezes because in the dark because they get a cold snap. They could have imported electricity in their February 2021 blackout if they'd been better connected. They don't want to be better connected. There are business reasons why they don't want to be better connected. I, I don't mean to sound anti-business because I think most things in the energy world that are accomplished are accomplished by business. But we've got business reasons not to decarbonize, not to take the steps necessary to get that done. Interesting. So, Matt, you, you spent 37 years at The New York Times, uh, worked as kind of a freelance writer for a little bit also in New York and D.C., and then got involved with uh, the Nuclear Energy Institute. Yes. It's one of the reasons that you know a lot about uh, nuclear. But tell us, tell us a little bit more about that. How did you come to find NEI or they found you and, and what kind of work did you do? Well, I was old enough to retire from the Times. I, I was getting a little 
frustrated that I wanted to go deeper into some subjects than a daily newspaper really allows you to do. Yeah. And the NEI is the advocacy arm of the industry and really has terrific technical expertise and gets into these issues. And it was fun. Uh, sink your teeth into some serious questions. Trade associations are somewhat limited by they, they work on what has a consensus of their members. And if you want to feel conflicted in life, go to work for any trade association. Uh, but NEI does a lot of good work and I enjoyed it. Tell us about uh, nuclear advocacy in the public. Um, I don't hear a lot about nuclear. And, and Mark, I don't know about you, but it, it seems to be undershadowed by wind and solar. Yeah. I mean, you said the nuclear lobby group is doing an OK job. I would disagree heavily and say they're doing a horrendous job. But that's that's my bias. Well, they do a good job of representing the industry in Congress and before regulatory bodies. Uh, the general public uh, polls show the general public is generally favorable to nuclear, but also doesn't feel very well informed about nuclear. Although the same might be said of electricity itself. Uh, certainly the, the level of understanding isn't, isn't terrifically high. I think the majority uh, of what everyone learns about electricity, they remember from fifth grade, if they remember. Yes, it. yes, exactly. <laughs> there is an old line uh, feeling that environmentalists are people who don't like nuclear energy. Well, I think that's backwards. I think the people who favor nuclear energy are, by definition, environmentalists. The first reactor built in this country for power, the shipping port reactor, was built near Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh had these horrendous smog events caused by burning coal. And Pittsburgh was a major industrial center. They needed more energy in a way that wouldn't make the air even dirtier. And nuclear was valued for years for helping hold down soot and smog emissions, and now for carbon emissions. People generally believe in technology, and there's a halo that surrounds new nuclear reactors, advanced nuclear. Getting a new reactor to market is a major challenge. Uh, I think there's a bunch of companies that are going to get this done. But wind and solar have a mythology around them. If I put solar in my roof, I'll be energy independent from the, the big utility that has dominated my life forever. Well, actually, that's not quite right. Most likely, you're going to be not only a customer, you're also going to be a vendor to that utility, and your solar panels won't work if the lights go out. But don't try to tell that to, to all the people who like, who like solar. Uh, wind has terrific benefits. It's also difficult, getting difficult to cite. It does have environmental impacts, as does solar, but it also has this halo around it. Uh, let me bore you just a bit with my own personal saga with solar, which is I live just outside Washington, D.C. in a 1973 condo building. It's 16 stories tall. It needs a new roof. Uh, I was assigned to go figure out while we've got the crane in and we're going to build a new roof, should we put solar up there? And the answer was really enlightening. The short answer is no. The longer answer is from our windows, we can see private houses with solar on the roof. It's an economic good deal for them. It's an economic lousy deal for us. The reason is our local utility, like utilities all over the country, does net metering. You sell them a kilowatt hour or you generate yourself and don't need to buy a kilowatt hour, you get the full value of that kilowatt hour. 
but that's only for residential customers in houses. In a house, all you pay for is a kilowatt hour. We have a single electric meter in our building and we pay an energy charge and a demand charge. Demand charges are common for big customers, industrial customers, commercial customers. We're treated as a commercial customer. As a result, we pay about $3.14 as a demand charge. And we have an energy charge that's quite modest. It's, it's down below uh, 10 cents. You can't buy solar power for what we pay for energy. We would be net metered, but only for the energy portion. Our demand charge would not change unless by some miracle, the solar output cut our demand. Well, the solar output peak is at noon. That's what noon means. Our peak is in late afternoon, our peak demand. So putting solar on the roof will not cut our demand charge. And the price we pay for the solar is more than the energy charge. What does this tell you? First of all, the Maryland Public Service Commission in its wisdom, and I'm not, I'm not complaining about this, set up the structure of our electric bill to mirror our costs to the system. And we have costs because we impose it, uh, an energy requirement and a demand requirement. Second of all, the Maryland Public Service Commission set it up differently for private houses. Maybe it's just to incubate this, although it's been an awfully long incubation. There's a lot of solar out there now. But the, the homeowners uh, don't pay the freight on the demand side. This tells you, among other things, that solar is going to have a limited impact, rooftop solar especially, is going to have a limited impact on our overall posture. <coughs> Excuse me. Eventually, we can't afford to pay everybody. We can't afford it for this building now to pay everybody their full electricity charge. You can only afford to pay the energy charge, and solar won't make it here on the energy charge. It might in a desert place, and it might also in a mass installation as opposed to itsy-bitsy installations on a lot of different roofs. This was a difficult concept for me to explain to my neighbors. <laughs> I, I, I'll say it back to see if I understand it. There's two separate charges under the electricity charge, an energy charge and a demand charge. Yes. And the private residences don't have a demand charge. Yes, it's all rolled into a kilowatt hour charge. It's all rolled. They, they sum it up and they say, hey, here's your one line item. But because you guys are a larger customer, you have two line items, how much energy you used. And then they also need to have, call it a standby cost to yeah. meet anticipated demand. Right? Yeah. So they have to have increased capacity. And then kind of the point that I think I heard you make is once the system realizes a carrying capacity of solar or inputting energy into the system at times when it is needed or more specifically when it's not needed um, there's a disconnect in supply and demand and there's the benefit of adding that additional supply uh, that is not lined up at the same time when the demand exists uh, means that the the system will break right I mean, that's that's true it's not yet true in maryland it is true in california for example right where but it would be true everywhere with the current current system that we have or i mean the way that electricity grids and markets are are set up throughout the country and the world right it may be if penetration gets high enough if you add one more solar panel to southern california now at peak hours of production its production is literally worthless. Now, it will be helpful at 
five in the afternoon when the sun is just going down and demand is peaking, but a, a, a 10 kW system at 5 p.m. is not producing 10 kW. Might be producing one kilowatt. Well, I'd have to look it up because I don't know it offhand, but you might. Do you know what percentage of California is energy production comes from comes from solar? It varies by region. It also varies by for how much uh, uh, forest fire smoke is in the air. Ah, of course, yes. But I believe in some regions it's up near 20%. But it may be approaching a natural limit unless we have magic batteries. Batteries are extremely expensive. They're environmentally detrimental to build. Uh, emphasis on the magic. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> everything we do has environmental degradation attached to it. The trick is to minimize it by balancing things properly. Certainly some batteries are helpful. Certainly there are ways to store energy other than chemical batteries in California and other places are exploring those. But if I were in Sacramento, okay, single move I could make assuring I'd never get reelected. I would propose tearing out a whole bunch of those solar panels and sending them to West Virginia. Because in California, solar displaces natural gas, which isn't clean, but it's cleaner than some other sources. Put them in West Virginia and they will displace coal. So the value of each panel to the environment rises. In addition, West Virginia is not saturated with solar. They don't have this problem of solar cannibalizing itself, of there being so much solar that the value of the production is reduced. As I said, I could do it, but I'd never get reelected. <laughs> so Matt, we met through uh, American Nuclear Society. You were moderating a panel of uh, media uh, professionals, so journalists and other writers specifically writing about uh, the nuclear industry. Um, I participated in the webinar. Uh, it was members only webinar, but I thought it was a fantastic event and you did a wonderful job moderating. So really, really thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I'm curious about your perspective or takeaway from, from that event. Uh, you know, what, what do you think the role is of media and journalism in the energy industry? And I'll, I'll be specific and kind of revert back to so kind of a two-part two part question. What's the media's general role? And then if we are ever going to achieve yeah, the, the lofty goal of hundreds of additional nuclear power plants throughout the country and the world, uh, how do we do that? What's kind of the most effective method with, and how is the media involved? Well, part of it is economics, part of it is policy, but those fit together. Let me give you an example. At, at this moment in Washington, Congress has been debating funding for an advanced test reactor that would mimic the conditions in various kinds of advanced reactors. So if you build a reactor, the conditions in the, uh, in the core itself are quite harsh and you want to know what kind of metal to put there, how to fit the pieces together. And the trick is you take samples of what you want to do and you put them into a test reactor and you bombard them with neutrons at the pressures and temperatures that are going to exist in the plant you want to build and you see how they stand up. And you can do accelerated testing. You can uh, simulate 10 years of wear or 20 years of wear in a, a year, year and a half, whatever, by greater density of, of neutrons, et cetera. 
At the moment, we got one company that's doing that in Russia, because guess what? We don't have a reactor that will produce those conditions. So Congress is discussing whether to fund such a reactor, and a House panel just voted not to do it. We also have a multi-year, multi-grant demonstration project, uh, the Advanced Reactor uh, Demonstration Project, which was funded for the first year. And we got two really innovative reactors that are coming along under that project and were promised more than a billion dollars each. And we got some reactors that are less far along in the development chain that were promised seed money uh, to get started. And they, th those companies have received that money. But Congress has got to appropriate increasing amounts from year to year to year. Uh, that's partly political. That requires the public to understand what's going on. That requires concern over climate change to extend to, okay, how do we build the tools to solve this problem? And in the case of the test reactor, how do we build the tools to build the tools to solve this problem? So there is a political component to this. Uh, you can go out and do a software startup in your garage. You can't do a reactor startup that way. There are what the economists call high barriers to entry. But there is a public benefit uh, if you can get it done, if you can get these across the finish line. And we need uh, Congress and, and with the president's budget, et cetera, to help get these projects across the finish line to show that they can be done and then to build them in series and with experience as with all kinds of major industrial projects, uh, they will become more economical and they will also become more essential I want to I shift gears for a minute, uh, something that I think the media doesn't understand but needs to. You see these stories here and there, solar is now cheaper than coal. You can produce a kilowatt hour less, for less money from a solar uh, panel, taking into account the cost of the panel, <clears throat> the cost of hooking it up to the system versus coal. Well, that might in fact be true. The same is true of wind in some cases. However, the object is not the cost. The key parameter is the value. We have reached the point in some places in the United States where the value of wind produced at peak wind hours or the value of solar produced at peak solar hours is zero. It has no value. It doesn't matter if it's cheaper than coal if its value is zero. And yeah. then you're going to crank up the, sol the, the wind, the, excuse me, the coal plant or more likely the natural gas plant at sunset, after sunset, et cetera, when there's no wind. So let's just, I guess, be crystal clear. Why is the value zero? Because because, because power plants are cannibals. They eat each other <laughs> uh, to draw a biological parallel. Yeah. Because we work on a supply and demand system in most of the United States. And right. even in, in more traditionally regulated places, we're working on a supply and demand system. And if they're producing power at hours that you don't need it, that's reflected in its price, not its cost, its price. The single message I'd like to get across is cost and price turn out to be two different things. They didn't used to be. It used to be if the price fell too low, the coal plant turned itself off or the natural gas plant turned itself off or the hydro plant saved its water for later and the price rose again and you could establish some stability. Now we flood the market at some times and the market starves at other times. So nuclear plants don't have to be cheaper than solar and wind.
they have to produce energy at a price that is below the market price. And they can do that because there are times when the market price of electricity will not be affected by sun and wind because sun and wind won't be running. And because we put appropriate uh, interpretive charges on carbon-based sources. You can get your electricity from coal if you want, but it's going to cost you X dollars per ton of, uh, of emissions. Ditto uh, fossil gas. I got to hand it to the, the fossil gas industry, though. Calling it natural, natural gas, it's not natural. Calling it natural gas instead of fossil gas <laughs> was the greatest rebranding since we turned uh, yellow jacket bees into pollinators. <laughs> it is natural. It comes out of the ground. It's organic. Well, it's it's natural. It's natural compared to what preceded it, which was town gas, which was partly cooked coal, mixture of H2 and CO. But its natural location is in the ground. It's not at the burner tip. A brilliant <laughs> branding job. Uh, yeah. And I don't mean to knock it completely. <laughs> it's better than coal, but it's not. It's not zero. Well, I, you I know, think, I uh, it's refreshing to hear your take on the the price of solar versus the price of coal. Um, I've actually thought about this question a lot. And if you had like three buttons in your house, like the gas station um, with solar, wind and coal, I think that coal button would be hit a lot of times because when you go to the gas station, unless you have an old yeah. car, you always hit the lowest number. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's true, and utilities are in a tight spot here because their customers are demanding zero carbon, and they're also demanding cost as low as possible. Yeah, cost as low as possible on all the time. Those those things are expected. Now now we yes. want to upgrade and have it to have the uh, zero carbon also. Yes, yeah. which I don't really understand how you do unless you have a reliable, dependable deployable the energy the energy of the future is wt as you may know everything in the energy business sounds better as an acronym wt <laughs> stands for wishful thinking ah <laughs> yes <laughs> uh no so let's let's uh let's be a little optimistic i guess what's if if we were to to make it happen i hear you and you say okay so media's role is to be uh, directors and policy making for the public and to dis disseminate information in order to adequately educate people, hopefully educate people quickly about the demand and the need um, for increased funding and additional resources to, to put towards research and implementing new nuclear technologies. Did I, did I hear that correctly? Yeah, or more broadly, to explain the world in real terms to people yeah, who, yeah. who have other concerns on their plates. And their other concerns include worthy things like COVID or personal freedoms, reproductive rights, etc. Uh, we are not focused on uh, climate change as if our future depended on it. No, uh, not at all. Uh, although, and, and, and our, our attention to it varies over time it was strong in the late 80s believe it or not and now it is now it's becoming strong again but uh we have a national case of attention deficit disorder we need to we need to buckle down and get some work done to get this problem solved 
And the one thing you can't buy is time. We have squandered time in a variety of ways. For example, we never got a good industrial scale demonstration of carbon capture from coal. We started out on it on three different occasions and we didn't finish any of them. We're not doing enough work on carbon capture from natural gas. We have, excuse me, fossil gas. We have put, uh, the successful rebranding, we have put um, research over the years into batteries. We found it a very hard nut to crack. We have put research into related technologies like fuel cells. We've made progress, but we're not there. Uh, but if I, I want to draw an analogy, which is there's a wonderful book out there called Arsenal of Democracy, which is actually about the Ford Motor Company's production of long range heavy bombers during World War II. At the beginning of the war, there was a plant in Los Angeles that was turning out six of them in a month. Uh, Pearl Harbor happens and heroically they raise this to 12 a month. Edsel Ford comes along. Edsel was a really good engineer, despite having a dog of a car named after him later, and builds Willow Run outside Detroit. They start churning out these things. By the end of the war, this one every 59 minutes. Now, that was a wartime effort. We are not on a wartime footing here. Maybe we ought to be, but we sure are not. Uh, we do have the capacity to bring industrial smarts to producing the hardware needed to solve these problems. But we need to have determination and we need to have the first few come off the production line and realize that we could do better. We could do them better, faster, cheaper. We need to do that in all kinds of areas. We've done that to some extent in wind and sun. We need to do it in transmission technologies and carbon capture technologies, and we sure need to do it in nuclear. I love that. No, that's that's great foresight and excellent insight into the future. Caroline, did you have a question? Yes. In the nuclear regulatory environment, if you could change one thing, what would you change, if any? I do believe that the industry benefits from having a strong, competent, independent regulator. In addition, getting approval from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is like the good housekeeping seal. You can then sell that reactor abroad. There are a lot of countries that would like to go nuclear that don't have a regulatory infrastructure, kind of like the Federal Aviation Administration. If they certify an airplane, third world countries that want to buy them for the national airline don't bother to recertify. They translate it into their native language and <laughs> tell their national airline to buy it. The, um, the NRC moves slowly, generally, and it knows it moves slowly, and it's working on moving faster. The NRC is set up to evaluate light water reactors, and that's its specialty. And it knows that the future does not lie exclusively in light water reactors, and certainly not in large light water reactors. And it is moving uh, to, to improve that. Um, you go into a nuclear plant these days, and you feel like Captain Nemo. There's all these analog dials all over the place. The industry would love to transfer to digital. Uh, they've transferred coal plants to digital. Now, the NRC is justifiably careful that if you introduce digital technology, you introduce the possibility of hacking, you introduce the possibility of some flaw in the hardware, uh, and at the moment, the nuclear plants all have 
backup systems that have to work by a different method using different controls. So you don't can't have a common mode failure. Maybe somehow in the transfer to digital, you could end up with common mode failure. So there are reasons to do this carefully. However, we got to get our act together. We got to modify these things. Uh, the Navy's done it. The civilian industry has to do it too. Uh, I, I believe that the commission staff uh, is aware of its shortcomings. Uh, it has a lot of strengths, but it has shortcomings. They're aware of those and they're working on them. Uh, I don't know if there's a single thing. A more realistic outlook uh, towards uh, what, what is actually possible, mechanically possible in, in a reactor system would be helpful. There are some design parameters that are built around failures that just can't happen. All these plants are built on the theory of can they handle what's called a double guillotine pipe break, which means you take some large diameter pipe and karate chop it twice so that a whole section just falls away. More likely you get a leak and a break, not a double guillotine pipe break. Uh, there are there are some other categories out there like that. See, I, I take pause kind of with the NRC's approach because I, I mean you said you know you can start a software company in your garage but you can't start a nuclear power or a nuclear uh, technology company and I think a huge part of that is just the the legality around it and the requirements that you have to meet in order to go and build something even if it's tremendously small uh, you know a little micro reactor that could fit in a shipping container to try and pilot still has still has to be licensed and yeah i i, I think the yeah regulatory requirements uh, my bias is that they're overburdening the nuclear industry and it's radically unnecessary and causing a lot more harm than it's doing good there's an interesting thing going on with kairos power a company that wants to build a reactor a pebble bed reactor they're building a test reactor, something hardly anybody does. Uh, there are some research reactors out there, <clears throat> but excuse me, Kairos uh, is, I've lost track there. They've either filed or they're about to file for permission to build a test reactor that won't produce electricity. It will only demonstrate the core. Last uh, on the NRC's website. I didn't see him yet, so. Yeah. I can look and that has relaxed licensing requirements. Not that it's going to be a threat to the public, but there are a few hoops you don't have to jump through. Uh, some of the micro reactors are interesting. Uh, there's a recognition that their source term, which means how much bad stuff could actually get out in an accident, is tiny. Um, the NRC was uh, considerate enough uh, in licensing, in giving advance approval to a site uh, that the TVA has, they want to build something at the Clinch River site to say if it's going to be a small modular reactor, no, it doesn't need a 10-mile emergency planning zone. The emergency planning zone might be two miles or might be just the fence boundary because the characteristics of a um, of the reactor likely to be built there, it just won't have the energy and the radioactive inventory to remotely need a 10-mile zone. So there, there are rules on the books that were 
put together when nobody had small reactors in mind and nobody had non-light water reactors in mind. And the NRC realizes that these are going to be anachronistic uh, and need to change. Uh, so, Matt, what uh, what advice do you have for young professionals? If somebody is getting into into their careers and they want to be in energy, I mean, you've you've watched it transform over several decades. What's where's, where's it going? Where's the opportunity? Uh, it's it's hard to know. I think there's still space for application of digital technologies to generation and the grid. The grid is still a large, dumb object, and so are some generators. Uh, um, There's a terrific pace of innovation. Material science has not been fully deployed in the energy realm. Uh, I think fracking is a good lesson, which is you never know what technology is going to lead you to. 3D seismic and supercomputing help bring about fracking. Fracking is a blessing and a curse. Fracking produced cheap natural gas that helped lift us out, excuse me, fossil gas that helped lift us out of the last recession. Uh, It's also retarding the transition to cleaner sources because it's so cheap, because the the gas it produces is so cheap. Uh, But that was an application of unrelated, well, not unrelated, an application of technologies that may not have been thought of as primarily energy technologies, uh, like like supercomputing. Uh, directional drilling helped too, but that was always an energy technology. And all the people who, who said it was wrong, it was never going to work, turned out to be wrong. You don't know what's going to work. Uh, you look at the reactor designs, there are some beautiful designs out there on paper. Not all of them will cross the finish line. Uh, and I, I think, as I said earlier, we need to we need to sponsor a bunch of them. People need to be willing to take risks in personal careers, in industrial policy, to try things out because there's value in knowing what works and what doesn't. I believe you said earlier there's success and failure. That's a great takeaway from this. Yes, yes, and that's about all I know. Um, we'll wrap it up there, Matt. We really appreciate your time, and uh, thanks so much for chatting with us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I've, I've learned something from each of you, uh, Mark and Caroline, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you.